awesome. And like Colin said, I just want to reiterate, happy Mother's Day, everybody. And can we just give a round of applause to all of the mothers who are in the room with us today? So happy Mother's Day. Yeah. And of course, not just the mothers who are in the room, but those of you who are also joining us on live stream or watching us online, happy Mother's Day to you as well. So hopefully you have a chance to celebrate, to appreciate and to articulate to the mothers in your life just how much we love and appreciate you. So thanks thanks for all that you do, and uh, just really, really thankful for all of you. And I'm also excited because today we're actually continuing in a series. It's actually the third part in a series that we've been calling Broken. And so if you are someone who's new to Grace, maybe you're a guest with us here today for the first time, I just want to extend a very special welcome to you. But just to catch you up to speed with what it is that we've been talking about in the series, basically the big idea is this. We've been saying that when we look out into the world in which we live in, I think all of us would say that it seems as if this world is broken, right? That when we look uh, into the world that we live in, when we watch the news, when we even just look out our front door into our own lives, it seems as if things are not quite what they should be. And you know, really what we've been saying is that this life, and I think all of us know this, this life is really, in a lot of ways, it's an enigma. Because on one hand, uh, when we look into this world and when we look at our life, there's such immense joy, there's such immense beauty, and there's such immense wonder that we experience in this life. Without a doubt, we see that. But then on the other hand, intermixed with all of that, I think we also see that this life, there's a lot of pain. And in this life, there's a lot of suffering. In this life, there's a lot of evil. And all of that's just kind of intermixed in this experience that we have uh, in our lives. And, you know, actually, it's interesting. We experience this dichotomy. We experience kind of this enigma in a lot of different ways throughout life. And one of the ways we experience that actually might be a good example of that might be this day today, right? Mother's Day. Uh, Mother's Day, in a lot of ways, of course, it's, it's a time that we, it's a joyful celebration of appreciation for the mothers in our life. And so it is a, a holiday that is full of a lot of joy. And yet at the same time, isn't it true that Mother's Day can also kind of have these undertones of sadness and grief that are kind of intermixed with it, right? And so, so for some of us, Mother's Day, of course, it's a joyful time, but maybe it's also a painful time because maybe it reminds us of mothers that have been part of our life or grandmothers who have been part of our life who we've since lost. Uh, or maybe for some of us, Mother's Day maybe is a sad reminder of, uh, of broken dreams that you've experienced. Or maybe even for some, Mother's Day is a, is a painful reminder of a complicated and confusing and broken relationship uh, that you have with somebody in your life. And all I'm saying is, I think we all know this, that Mother's Day is just a small example of what we experience in a lot of different ways in life. That this life in many ways, it's complicated, that there's joy and there's beauty and there's wonder, and yet at the same time, there's pain and there's suffering and there's grief. It's all mixed in with that. And so in this series, we're just simply saying, I think all of us feel that. We're simply asking the question, why is it this way? Why is the world in this state? Why is it in a place of brokenness? Now, interestingly, um, you know, here at the Medina East Campus, we've talked about this before, but it's been said that every major worldview is seeking to answer four basic questions. So every worldview, whether you're religious or you're irreligious, whether you're a person of faith or you're a person investigating faith, every worldview is trying to answer four basic questions, and it's these. First and foremost, where did everything come from? Every worldview is looking to answer that question. What is our origin story? Where did we come from? Where did the world come from? Where did humanity come from? The second question is this. What is wrong? What's wrong with the world that we live in? I think all of us would say we have to somehow, we have to give an explanation for why it is that something as beautiful as the world that we live in, that we can experience such immense suffering and pain within it. And the third question every worldview is trying to answer is what's the solution? 
right? What's the path forward? What's the way out of the brokenness that we see? And then the final question is just simply, where is it all going? What is the end of the story? Where is it all culminating into as we look at this? And here's what we've been saying in this series. We've been saying that even though every worldview is trying to answer these questions, the Bible actually provides very clear and honest and compelling responses to these questions. And here at the Manani East Campus, we believe that one of the reasons that God has given us the Bible is because he loves us. And he actually wants us to be aware of the world that we live in. I think he wants us to know what has happened in the world that we live in and how to get our way back to a right relationship with him. And basically what the Bible is gonna tell us is it's gonna show us that unlike every other worldview, so every major worldview is basically gonna tell us that the reason the world is the way it is is because it's always been that way. The Bible is actually gonna tell us something very different. The Bible is going to say that actually the world that we live in is broken, that it's broken. And as simple as that might sound, I actually think that's a really important statement. And the reason is because this, to say that something is broken necessarily insinuates that at one point in time, it was unbroken, right? To say that something is broken necessitates that at one point in time, it was whole and it was fixed and it was as it should have been. And that's actually exactly what the Bible says. The Bible says that the reason we experience this dichotomy of such good in the world and yet such, such a feeling that we wish things would be different is because this is actually not the way things were supposed to be, that God actually created it a different way in the very beginning. And so that's what we've been doing. And, and in this series, we've been going back to the origin story. We've been looking at specifically Genesis, the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and three, which really help give a lot of insight into how did the world become the way that it is. So today, as we continue in this series, I actually want to invite you, if you would, why don't you get your Bible, why don't you go back with me to Genesis chapter three. Okay, so Genesis three is where we're going to be spending our time here this morning. If you did not bring a Bible or you don't have a Bible app on your phone or anything like that, you can use one of the Bibles under the chairs. Uh, you'll actually find uh, the Bibles there, and you can turn in those Bibles to page two. That's where you're going to find it, very easy to find. And let me just say, if you do not own a physical copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those. You can make that a gift from us to you, and you can have a Bible. All right, so Genesis chapter three is where we're gonna go. Now, as you're locating Genesis chapter three, um, I just wanna, I wanna, I wanna kind of show us as we look at this, I think what we're gonna see is that Genesis one and two, and we've, this past couple of weeks we've talked about this, Genesis one and two, we are going to see the world as it was intended to be in its unbroken state. The Bible's going to tell us that God created the world and he created it to be good. But by the time you get to Genesis chapter three, Genesis three is going to record for us what went wrong. Specifically, that passage, Genesis chapter three, is sometimes what's called the fall. It's called the fall. And as we've talked over the past couple of weeks, what we saw is that this fall, the effects of the fall were very substantial. Pastor Kevin pointed out two weeks ago, but in Genesis chapter three, we actually see four effects from the fall, that there are four kinds of falls that we see take place in Genesis chapter three. The first one is we see that there's a separation of God and man. So we're gonna see in Genesis chapter three, when the fall occurs, it, it, it affects the relationship that man has with God. There's a separation, there's an alienation between God and man, but that's not the only effect. The Bible's gonna say that also what happens in Genesis three is that there's a separation from man and self. There's an alienation that happens within ourselves. That's an effect of the fall. The third kind of separation we're gonna see is between man and man. There is a relational separation, a relational, a relational alienation that takes place. And then lastly, there's a separation between man and creation itself. And so today, I think as we continue to think about this, this helps us understand the multidimensional brokenness that we feel in the world that we live in right now. 
Today, I actually want to zoom in, and I want to talk specifically about the second one. I want to talk about how, how did the fall create a separation and an alienation within ourselves? How did that take place? So we're going to look at that here in Genesis chapter 3. And specifically, I want to think through two questions with the time that we have together. Here's the two questions. First off, I want to ask the question, how did the fall cause us to lose ourselves? So how did sin, when sin entered into the world in Genesis 3, what did that do to our relationship with ourselves? I want to answer that question. And then number two, what's the way forward? How do we find ourselves? I think we see that here in, in the passage that we're looking at today. Now, before we look at Genesis chapter three, which I think answers this question, I think it's, it's important that we first look at the last verse in Genesis chapter two, because the last verse in Genesis chapter two, I believe, paints a picture for us of what our relationship with ourself was intended to look like before the fall. In an unbroken state, what was our relationship with ourself supposed to look like? So I want you to notice what the Bible says. This is Genesis chapter two, verse 25. It says, Adam and his wife, so the first humans, were both naked and they felt no shame. All right, so I wanna remind you, this is the last verse in, in Genesis chapter two, which describes to us the world in its unbroken state. By the time you get to Genesis chapter three, sin enters into the world, and then the rest of the Bible is gonna document really kind of the human condition from there on out. But do you notice what this verse says? I guess it's actually a really amazing verse. This verse says that the first humans who lived in a state of, of creation in which it was exactly as God, it was an unbroken state of creation, the Bible's gonna say that the first humans were naked and they felt no shame. Now, of course, the question is, what exactly does that mean when the Bible says they were naked and they felt no shame? Well, I think it's obvious that, of course, part of what it means is it means that they were naked and they felt no shame, that they were physically naked and they felt no shame. Uh, I don't know about you, but the picture that comes in my mind when I read this, I just can't seem to get it out of my mind, is I always think of like those storybook Bibles that depict this scene, and it's always these cartoon images of these humans who are naked, and there's always foliage that's strategically covering certain parts. You know what I'm talking about? That's what comes to my mind. But what I want you to see is that while it's true that, yes, they are physically naked here, I think this, this, this verse is actually telling us much more than that. I think in a lot of ways, this verse is a profound statement about the ease of vulnerability and the well-being and contentment that the first humans experienced within themselves. Commentators will actually point this out. They'll say that nakedness here refers to far more than physical nakedness. So Tremper Longman is a Bible scholar, and he said it this way. He said, the naked condition of the man and the woman goes beyond a physical description. It's not just physical nakedness. It also uh, has application regarding psychological oneness and transparency. Physically, they're naked and they share their bodies with each other openly. And psychologically, they are not ashamed and hide nothing from each other. They are at ease without any fear of exploitation. See, I think that's actually a really profound and beautiful picture because what the Bible is telling us is that in our original state of unbrokenness, that the first humans were essentially open books to each other. They were totally comfortable in their own skin, completely vulnerable and completely transparent with one another. I mean, can you guys imagine that? Can you imagine being in a relationship with yourself and with others in such a way that you feel absolutely no need to filter anything, no need to hide anything, no need to edit anything, no need to conceal anything, no need to Photoshop anything? Can you imagine what that would be like? That's what these first humans experienced, that kind of ease and transparency and vulnerability and that kind of comfort in their own skin with who they were created to be. You know, I don't know about you, but for me, when I read this passage, the first thing that comes to my mind is I can't help but think of kids. 
You guys ever notice how with little kids, it just seems like that they just, they have, with little kids, there's such an innocence and there's such a liberating absence of shame in their nakedness and their transparency and in their vulnerability, right? Do you guys ever notice that? And I just couldn't help but think of, um, my wife and I have four kids, you know, and our youngest, his name is Louie. And when I read that verse and it said they were naked and unashamed, I thought of Louie uh, for a few different reasons. But one was this. So uh, uh, when he was getting potty trained, so this was a while ago, uh, we were potty training Louie. And we did this thing that a lot of people do, I guess, when they potty train. It was warm outside. And so we would let Louie run around in the backyard uh, without his pants on, right? And so that way he'd kind of get in tune with his body and when he had to go to the bathroom. And it seemed like it worked pretty well. But of course, what happened was uh, Louis became very accustomed to going to the bathroom outside. And like most guys, he began to prefer it. Uh, and so uh, I remember he would do this thing, Louis would do this thing where he would wake up and he would come to my wife or I after he woke up and he would say, I have to go potty. And my wife and I'd be like, then, you know, fine, go to the bathroom, it's right there. And he would go, no, I want to go outside. And I don't know if this is terrible parenting, but my wife and I are like, what do we care? So... <laughs> We just opened the back door. <laughs> just let Louie out like a dog, you know? <laughs> Louie would go do his business and come back in and wipe his feet off. <laughs> so he's just naked and unashamed, and he got there. And I remember this, and by the way, just for clarification, I don't know why this is important. It was always number one, all right? I don't, there'd be too much information, but it'd be weird if it was not. But uh, I actually remember this one time, it's my favorite, um, Louis's like, I gotta go potty, so we opened the back door and let him out, and our neighbor was out there, our neighbor was outside, and so Louis doesn't stop him, Louis starts going potty, and then he just goes, oh, hi, Miss Christine, who's our neighbor, and Miss Christine's like, oh, hi, oh, Louis, and he's like, I'm going potty, and she's like, I, I see that, and, and our neighbors love us a lot, and so... Um, but there's just something about that, just the, man, the vulnerability, the transparency, the comfort and ease with yourself. Now, I'm not advocating that we do that or that we be like that, but what I am saying is when you read this verse and it says they were naked and they felt no shame, I think it actually speaks something uh, just to the contentment. The, it speaks something to the vulnerability and the transparency that we were intended to experience within ourselves. It's actually a beautiful picture, but what you're gonna see, it's a short-lived picture because then you get to Genesis chapter three and now the tone changes. So look what it says in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, and you will know good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and was pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, I wanna, I wanna hit pause here for a second before we keep reading. And I just, I just wanna mention, if you're a person who's not a big Bible reader, maybe you're kind of new to the Bible, I just want you to know, Genesis 3 is maybe one of the most mocked and criticized chapters in the whole Bible. And I wanna say that I think at first glance, I can completely understand why. Because when you open this up and you read it, I mean, what do you see? Well, the first thing you see is you see a talking snake, which, I mean, come on, that's weird. And then there's this, this tree with apparently this forbidden fruit that can give you the knowledge of good and evil, and then you have maybe these cartoon images of these two naked people in a garden, 
And because of that, a lot of people just laugh it off. They just dismiss it as something that's completely unreasonable. Um, and I just wanna say, I can understand that at first glance, but can I just tell you this? I believe that when you look at this more deeply and when you look at this passage and you take it seriously, that this chapter, is, this chapter in the Bible is actually one of the most profound, insightful, haunting, and revealing diagnoses of the human dilemma that we find ourselves in today. Can I just tell you this? I am, by no stretch of the imagination, am I a Bible, quote unquote, expert. But I can speak from my experience. And can I just tell you this? That after about 20 years now of studying the Bible, after about 20 years of, and I'm probably not exaggerating, of spending probably hundreds and hundreds of hours studying and teaching and listening to lectures and listening to sermons and going through classes on this particular text, can I just tell you from my own experience what I'm convinced of? I am convinced that this chapter, Genesis chapter three, is one of the most brilliantly written works of literature that we humans have in our possession. This is one of the most insightful, penetrating teachings that cuts like a knife down to the core issues that we see in the human situation. Now, obviously, for that reason, there's so much that we could say about the verses we just read that we just don't have time to say. And there's so much that we could say that we've already said over the past couple of weeks. But for our time and for our sake today, what I wanna point out, what you see here in Genesis chapter three, is I think we see an explanation of how sin causes us to lose ourself. I think we actually see this. I believe that what we're gonna see in this passage is something that I call the cycle of sin and selfishness. The cycle of sin and selfishness. How do we lose ourselves? I think this passage explains to us. It is a cycle of sin and selfishness. You might be thinking, what exactly does that mean? Well, let me show you. Let me show you. I think the cycle begins here. I'll just draw it out. The cycle begins, and you're gonna see this. The first humans turn from God. They turn from God, and they choose to trust in themselves. So this is exactly what you're gonna see in Genesis chapter three. Uh, it has been said that at the heart of every sin is selfishness. That's what's been said. And I gotta say, there's a lot of things the Bible says about sin. Sin is a very complicated topic. But can I say, I actually agree with that, that the core of all sin, at the very heart of all sin, the root of all sin, is selfishness. I think it's important for us to understand. You see, sin, sin is not just bad behavior. Sin is not just forbidden pleasure. What sin is, at its very core, is its rebellion. It is a turning away from God and is, a, is choosing to trust in oneself at the very, very, very heart. And so what do you see in Genesis 3? Well, I want you to notice this. The Bible's gonna say that, that the serpent comes to the woman. Now, of course, later, we're gonna dis discover that the serpent, who that's referring to, is Satan. The Bible's gonna call him a lot of things. It's gonna call him Satan, the deceiver. It's gonna call him the accuser. He's our ancient foe, according to the scriptures. But when he comes, he comes with temptation. And what does that temptation look like? Well, I want you to notice, the first thing he does is he calls into questions God's words. So he comes to the woman and he calls into question what God said. Did God really say? So he questions God's word, but not only does he question God's word, I want you to notice what else he does. He exaggerates God's word. Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, of course, if you were with us over the last couple of weeks, you know that this is a, a gross distortion and an exaggeration of what God said. What did God say? God said this, you can eat from any tree in the garden except for one. And what do you see the serpent do? Did God say you can't eat from any tree? He's exaggerating. He is sowing seeds of suspicion about the character and the goodness of God. And then he goes on and he calls God a liar. 
God said, if you eat from this, you will die. He says, you will not die. And then here, this is the last thing I wanna show you. He goes on to say this next sentence, the tempter does. And I believe that the lie that he gives to the woman in this next verse is the foundation that lies behind the heart of all sin. This is the great lie. And what is it? He says, you will not die because God knows that when you eat from this, your eyes are gonna be opened and you're gonna be like God and you're gonna know good from evil. You guys, I believe that this right here is the core issue. This is the core lie that lies behind every act of rebellion against God. And do you see it? Do you see what it is? Here's here's what it is. Here's the great lie. The lie is this. God is holding you back. God is keeping you and he is holding you back from being fully you. Do you notice what the enemy does here? He appeals to selfishness. He says to the woman, God is holding you back from all that you could really be. If you wanna be truly enlightened, if you wanna be truly free, if you wanna find true fulfillment in this life, then the answer is that you cannot trust God. You must turn from God and trust in yourself. And this is the great lie that we continue to hear to this day. If you wanna find freedom in this life, if you wanna find joy in this life, if you wanna try and find fulfillment in this life, the answer is that you need to run from the author of life. And so what does the woman do? The woman and the first humans are going to do exactly that. They're gonna turn from God and they're gonna choose to trust in themselves. And you guys, can I just say, isn't it true that that same lie that we see in Genesis chapter three all of those years ago is the same lie that reverberates in our ears and our hearts and our minds even to this day? Don't we feel it? I feel it. God is holding you back. God's word is restrictive. God's word is restraining. He is keeping you from being who you fully can be. Is this, I mean, is this not, does this not personify the sexual ethic that we see in our society today? Isn't that it? What's the sexual ethic? If you wanna be truly free, if you wanna be truly yourself, if you wanna be truly liberated sexually, then you need to run from God's word. You need to run from God's way. God is holding you back. He is limiting you and restraining you. And the path to moving forward is that you need to leave God and move forward. Is that not the sexual ethic? Is this not the mantra we hear in our education systems today? Isn't that it? In our school systems, in our universities, the path to progression, the path to enlightenment, the path to higher thinking and higher education is we gotta leave God in the rearview mirror It's regressive and archaic. He's holding us back. Is this not what we see in so many political wins that we see today? If we wanna advance as a society, if we wanna grow as a nation, if we actually wanna progress, then we need to turn away from God. We need to leave religion in the rearview mirror. I mean, this shows up in so many different ways and this lie continues to perpetuate even to this moment. I just wanna tell you, this lie is so powerful because it's so effective. And I want you to see how it works in this passage because look what the verse says. The verse says in verse six, in Genesis chapter three and verse six says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and was pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. Now I want you, this is so, this is so insightful. Genesis says that this woman, the woman who, the first humans who had heard God say, this tree is not good, that now after hearing the lie, God is holding you back. They now look at this very same tree with different set of eyes. And now, do you notice what the Bible says? In her assessment, in her evaluation, when she sees the fruit of the tree, she says that it is good. 
Now, man, this again, this just reveals the brilliance of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Some of you guys know this. The word good is a very important word in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It is one of the most repeated words that you see. Some of you might remember this if you were with us a couple weeks ago. In Genesis 1 and 2, do you remember that each successive step of creation, God repeats and he says, he looks at his creation and he declares that it is what? Good. Over and over and over again, God is saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. In Genesis 1 and 2, God is the one who is declaring what is good and what is not good for humankind. In Genesis 1 and 2, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. God says, it is good. These things are good. These things are not good. And the first humans got to live in this dependence, in this trust that God knew what was best for them and they could trust his word. But now when you get to Genesis chapter three, the lie enters into the equation. And now for the very first time, the woman is determining what she believes is good for her. So she knows what God has said. But now she sees and she declares, this is what's good for me. And now we believe that we are the ones who determine what's good for us. It continues to this very day. And so look at this next part. The Bible says she took it and she ate it. And then this next part, I mean, as many times as I've ever taught this, this still just blows me away, this next part. She took some and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. Man, that, that, that still, to this day, it just it does, never ceases to amaze me, this part of the passage. You know, Eve, man, Eve gets such a bad rep sometimes. People are like, oh, well, she was the one who ate the fruit. She's the one who introduced the sin. It was not Adam's fault. I mean, Adam wasn't even there. And you're like, well, the Bible actually tells us, where was this guy at? This jack wagon was right next to her the whole time. And what was he doing? I mean, you talk about your all-time passive male guy's wife is talking to his snake and he's like, that's cool. So she takes it, she eats it and she's like, here, eat this. And he's like, okay, whatever. So here's the point. They both, they both, they both are guilty. They take, they eat and then watch what happens immediately. Watch the effects. The Bible says, then the eyes of both of them were open. Now that's not saying they were blind before this. They weren't. It's just telling us that they perceived reality differently. Suddenly, they're, 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 they're way, the way that they viewed things was shaded. But I want you to notice, this is, this is so impactful and so insightful. The next thing this says, it says that the first thing that happens, the first thing that's impacted because of rebellion, do you notice this? It's the way that they view themselves. It's the very first thing that you see. Look at the Bible says, they ate it and their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked. First, you know, they've been naked the whole time. But suddenly they realize they're naked and the Bible says they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. First thing they noticed was themselves. They took cover and then look at the next thing. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. You know, guys, this is such a sad scene, but I, I think that this is so important because what you see, I think you see this cycle. You see this cycle. And what do you see? Here's what you see. The, the, the first humans turned from God and they, they chose to trust in themselves. And what was the effect? The effect is that now that they've turned from God and they've chosen to go their own way, now, now, now shame enters into the human equation. And now there's guilt and there's shame. And their first response is to do what? Well, now they wanna cover and they wanna hide. And so now these humans who were created to live in such transparency and such vulnerability now they feel the need to cover themselves and they need to feel to hide themselves from each other and from God. I mean, remember what Genesis 2.25 said, 
They were naked and they were unashamed. But now the Bible says that they were naked and they wanted to cover and they wanted to hide. And so what is this? This is what shame is. Shame is now introduced into the human situation. And let me tell you, shame, all of us know this, shame is a powerful and a painful emotion. Powerful and painful. You've probably heard it said before, guilt is the feeling that I have done wrong. That's what guilt is. Shame is the feeling that I am wrong, that I'm, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong inside of me. Where does that feeling come from? It comes from Genesis chapter three. I love the way one author said it. He said it this way, David Atkinson, he's a commentator. He said, shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being not being able to be comfortable with, who, who, with yourself as you are and therefore not being comfortable in the presence of another. That's what shame is. And so suddenly what you see is that self-centeredness enters into the human equation. Self-consciousness, self-awareness, embarrassment of self enters into the human situation. Listen, the first humans had never felt that feeling before. And you and I don't know a moment where we haven't felt those feelings. It is the world and it is the the type of existence that we live in a broken and a fallen state. And to this day, we still feel this. We feel the need to cover and to hide ourselves in our shame. We continue to do this. I think that this passage is so insightful because I believe that it helps us make so much sense of what we experience within ourselves. Why is it that for all of us, to some degree or another, we never feel fully comfortable in our own skin? Why is that? I think Genesis 3 helps us understand this. I believe that Genesis 3 helps us understand where self-help comes from. Where does that feeling of self-alienation that we just, we just can't quite figure out who we are, where does that stem from? I think it stems right from here. You can, do you ever notice it? You can hear it in the way we talk. Do you ever hear the way we talk? We'll say things like this, man, I'm just, just trying to find myself. Just trying to figure out who I, who I am. That's what I'm trying to. What, what are we talking about? We're saying we've lost ourselves. There's a sense of alienation that lies within. I think this helps explain why self-help exists. I think this helps explain why self-image is such a big deal. I think this helps explain where a deep sense of insecurity stems from, that we just constantly feel like we want to be away from people and away from others because we're just not comfortable in our own skin, where does that come from? It comes from here. Why is it that all of us intrinsically feel like there's something inside of us that's not acceptable and that we somehow have to ascertain or we have to obtain some different version of ourselves that's more acceptable? Where does that come from? It comes from here. It comes from here. And we continue to do this and we continue to hide. It's just like it says in this passage. The Bible's gonna tell us that in Genesis, Genesis is gonna tell us this is not the way it was intended to be from the beginning that something has went wrong, that we are broken. And just like the first humans, our response is to do this. The Bible says that they sewed fig leaves and they made coverings for themselves. And we continue to do the same thing, to try to cover up. One commentator said it this way about this verse. Those fig leaves represent man's earliest attempts to cover up his sin, to provide himself with a covering, to cloak his guilt and shame. They represent every effort made by man to do something to make himself fit the presence of God and the presence of others. And so just like it says in verse seven, just like it says, they realized they were naked, they saw their vulnerability, and they attempted with their own efforts to try their best to conceal themselves and to make a more presentable version for each other to see. And I think to this day, we still do this. We are sowing modern day fig leaves. 
We are constantly trying to put something over ourselves, the parts that we think are unacceptable, to make ourselves more acceptable to each other. We are still doing this, and we do it in a lot of different ways. Our fig leaves can look different. Sometimes it looks like degrees, and it looks like PhDs, trying to present to the world a version of ourselves that's more acceptable, trying to cover over the areas of insecurity and shame that we feel. Uh, For some of us, we try to cover up with success. We try to get status symbols that show people the bigger house, the bigger car, the, the clothing labels that show people that we're put together and that we are acceptable, presenting a more, a, a more modified version of ourselves to others. For some of us, the way that we do it is we do it with humor. We try to cover ourselves up that for some of us, the way that we try to medicate the feeling that we're just not acceptable as we are is we become people pleasers. For some of us, we go the other direction and we become the critics that point out everyone else's faults to make us feel better about ourselves. But here's the point, it shows up in a million different ways. But the Bible's gonna say that it all flows from Genesis three, we are continually covering ourselves and not just covering ourselves from each other, we're also hiding from God. Look what it says in verse eight. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I gotta tell you this verse right here, this verse was so devastating to me as I was studying it over the past couple of weeks. It's just in in a fresh way, it was just so devastating to me. And the reason I think it was so devastating to me is because in this verse, I believe it reveals to us the kind of intimacy that was available that the first humans had on offer to them with God. Would you notice what the Bible says? It says that God was there to take a walk with them in the cool of the day. I mean, who do, you, who do you go for a walk with in the cool of the day? You go with someone you really care about, a loved one, a family member, a friend. That's who you walk with. And, and the Bible's telling us, listen, it's that kind of intimacy. It's that kind of relationship that humans were, were intended to share with our creator, with God. And it, it devastates me because the Bible says now what at one point was a place of friendship and intimacy with God now becomes a place of fear. And when the presence of God comes near these first humans, rather than running into his presence, now the Bible says they run away from his presence. And I believe that this continues to be the case today. The natural inclination of the human heart is not to run to God. It's to run from God. That is true of every single one of us who are in this room. It's it's the brokenness that lies within. And isn't it true that when we feel that we've done something that's unacceptable or something that displeases God, our initial response is never to run to God, it's to run from God. Our initial response is not to run to God's people, it's to run from God's people. I see this in myself. If I feel like I've done something that is displeasing to God or something that is something that's unacceptable in some way, you know what my first response is? It's not to read my Bible. It's not to go to church. I don't wanna go to church. It's not to be with God's people. It's not to go to life group. Typically what I wanna do is I wanna move myself away from those things because I think to myself, man, I'm such a failure. I need to do better. I need to work harder. And once I get my behavior back in line, then maybe I can go back to church. Then maybe I can go back to the Bible. Then maybe I can go back. I mean, how foolish is that? And actually what sadly and ironically, when we do this, what we do is we perpetuate the cycle. And so we turn from God yet again. We run from him, and where do we go? We go back to ourself, and we trust ourselves and what we should do, and what happens? More alienation and more guilt and more shame, which causes us to do what? To cover ourselves up again, to run from each other, and then to run from God. And as we run from God and we turn from him, what do we do? We go back to ourselves. It's a downward cycle. It's a downward spiral. And we continue on this trajectory, and it leads to greater alienation within ourselves. So the first question, how did we lose ourselves? I think this describes it. I think this describes it. I think we see it right here in Genesis chapter three. 
So that's the answer to the first question. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. <laughs> Some of you are like, that's pretty rough. But here, here's the good news, because there's good news. There's a second question. And the second question is, well, how do we find ourselves? If this is how we've lost ourselves, then how do we find ourselves? And you guys, this is where the good news comes. This is where the good news comes. I think it's pretty clear that if, 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 the, if, the, if the problem that we see, if what has caused this separation within ourselves, if this beginning of that problem is that we have turned to ourselves, if that is where this problem originates from, I think it's pretty clear that the answer, the solution to finding ourselves cannot be found within ourselves. Right? It seems pretty clear that the real problem is that we have turned to ourselves. Therefore, the answer can't be to find ourselves that we need to turn to ourselves. I think it's clear that the answer is that whatever it is that, that's gonna help us truly find ourselves, it has to be something from outside of ourselves that's going to save us from ourselves. I think that's gotta be it. In other words, I'll put it this way. I think what this reveals to us is that we need a savior. We need something from outside of us to save us from ourselves. D.A. Carson said it this way. If what human beings need above all else is better health, then may God give us doctors. And if what human beings need above all else is more economic justice, then may God give us economists. If what human beings need above all else is better government, then God give us better politicians. But if what we need above all else is the forgiveness of sin, and that is what we need above all else. And if what we need above all else is reconciliation with the very God who created us, then what we need is we need a savior. We need a savior. And so it's no surprise that because that's our greatest need, that is precisely what God has provided. The answer to the second question, how do we find ourselves? The answer is actually this. I'll tell you, we need a savior. And the answer, the answer, surprise, surprise, is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Now I know that's like the, the, the Sunday school answer to every question, it's Jesus. But it's that for a reason, because he is. He is the answer, it's in Jesus. The Bible is gonna tell us that God, in his loving kindness, saw the human situation. He saw us in our alienation. He saw us in our brokenness. And rather than leaving us there, he sent his son. He sent a savior. And when Jesus came, Jesus did what no other human being has ever done before. He reversed the cycle. And you're gonna see that when Jesus came, rather than turning from God and trusting in himself, he emptied himself and he fully trusted in God. Man, I'll tell you, you see this over and over again. Jesus is the only one who fully and perfectly trusted God. One of the most beautiful things, beautiful scenes in scripture is, I believe, in Luke 22. In Luke 22, some of you might remember, it's a scene in another garden, and what you see is there's another tree. But this time, the garden is the Garden of Gethsemane, and the tree is the cross. And you see Jesus praying to his father, and some of you might remember what he prayed. You remember what he prayed? He said, Father, if there is another way, if there's another way besides the cross, please take this from me. Take the, I don't want to do this. But then do you remember his prayer? Father, not my will, but your will be done. He fully trusted the father, and he was obedient to him. And the Bible's gonna say that rather than hiding himself and covering himself, the Bible's gonna say instead that Jesus gave of himself. He poured his life out. For the sake of those who have denied him and who have rebelled against him, he gave himself out in sacrifice for us all. And I believe that the Bible is going to say that through the cross and through his resurrection, that Jesus has accomplished several things. He's accomplished several things, but at least three. The Bible is gonna tell us this, that in doing this for us, that first and foremost, Jesus cleanses us. He has cleansed us from sin. 
He has cleansed us from rebellion. This is exactly what 1 John says. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But not only does he cleanse us from our sin, the Bible's gonna say that he also covers us. He covers our shame. Romans chapter eight says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He clothes us in his righteousness. He covers over top of our shame. And then on top of all of that, he calls us. He calls us to now live a different kind of life, a different pattern, a different cycle of life. That's why it says in Philippians that we should have the same mindset, that we should have the same attitude, that we should take on the same pattern of life as Jesus Christ. And what does that pattern look like? Well, it looks like this. It looks like this. It looks like following Jesus. And when we follow him, now what do we do? We empty ourselves. Rather than choosing to turn from God to ourselves, we choose to empty ourselves and to turn to God and to trust in him. This is why the Bible is gonna say things like this. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's what the Bible's gonna say. The Bible's gonna say things like this, that we should deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, that if we lose our life for his sake, we will find our life. And the Bible's gonna tell us that when we do this, when we empty ourselves and we turn to God and we trust God, what we're gonna find is we're gonna find grace and we're gonna find forgiveness and we're gonna find life. And as, as the love of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the life of God begins to fill us, it then overflows out of us. And rather than covering ourselves and trying to hold on to ourselves, the Bible says that now we can give away our life. We can give away our life in sacrifice and service to other people so full of the love of God that we can now take that to others. And as we do that, as we do that, we again empty ourselves and return back to God and continue this cycle over and over again. Can I just tell you, here's what I believe. I believe that as paradoxical as it might sound to you, this is actually the way that we find ourselves. How have we lost ourselves? We have looked to ourselves. How do we find ourselves? We don't look to ourselves. We empty ourselves. We come to God, we trust him. And as his love fills us and as he transforms us, we go to give our lives. And as we give our lives for the sake of other people, oddly and ironically, we actually find who it is that we were created to be. We find ourselves. You know, that seems paradoxical to us. When, we, when I talk about finding yourself, for many of us, we would think that the way that you find yourself is that you focus on yourself. I need more me time. I had to work on my self-esteem. I need to get some self-help. I need to just get just self, 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 self. The Bible's actually gonna say something very different. The Bible's gonna say the way out of the prison of selfishness is actually to turn from yourself, is to trust in God and to give your life to others. Jeff Cook said it this way. The more I make my life, my well-being, my enlightenment, and my success primary, the farther I step from reality. Thus, the hellbound do not travel downward, they travel inward, cocooning themselves behind a mass of vanity, personal rights, religiosity, and defensiveness. Obsession with self is the defining mark of a disintegrating soul. Or if I could put it in my own words, I'd put it this way. I think when we turn from God to ourselves, we lose ourselves. But when we turn from ourselves to God, we truly find ourselves. Or if I could put it in Jesus's words, he said it best. Jesus said this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'm asked the band to come up. And as they do, um, as I was thinking and praying and preparing this message for us today, there's three reflection questions that were coming into my mind. And I thought I'd just share these with you 
and ask you just to reflect on these as we worship and we sing and we pray. Would you reflect on these three questions in light of everything that we've just read? So here's the first one. Will we, will you turn from yourself and trust in God? I think that this passage doesn't just explain to us how we've been alienated from ourselves. I think this passage also reveals to us, I believe it's an invitation of the way out. Will we trust God? Will we choose to let him define and direct our life? Will we surrender our right to determine what we believe is good for our life? And will we trust the voice of God to be the one who determines those things for us? Will we do that? It's an invitation to trust him. It's an invitation to trust him again, to keep coming back to him over and over again. Here's a second reflection question. Will we come to Jesus to cover our shame? Will we come to him? Listen, here's the reality, and this is just true of every human being, every single one of us in this room, everyone, every single person watching on live stream. Here's what's true. Every single one of us carries guilt and shame with us in this life. We all do. We are all broken people. And as far as I can reason, there's only one of three things that we can do with that shame. There's only one of three things that we can do with guilt and shame. Number one is this. We can let it define us. We can let our shame and we can let our guilt define us. And so we can walk through life always feeling like we are just not enough, always feeling terrible for the things that we've done, always trying to earn in some way a way to cover over our shame. We can let it define us. Number two, we can deny it. We can just deny it. We can just say, we can create some kind of narrative in our mind that somehow justifies that we're actually okay that it really wasn't that big of a deal. That while I was young, or it took two to tango, we can create a narrative that covers over our shame. But here's what I've discovered. If you, if you allow your shame to define you, or if you choose to deny your shame, either scenario, it is controlling you. There's a third option, though. There is a third, and I believe it's this. You can come to Jesus and let him forgive you of your shame. Your shame can be a reminder to you. Whenever you feel that, it can be a reminder to you of the grace and the love and the forgiveness that is made available to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you come and thank him, what wells up in your heart is gratitude. Your shame can be a reminder to you not to run from God, but to run to him, where you'll find grace and you'll find forgiveness. Where will you take your shame? Will, you give, will we give ourselves to God and will we give ourselves to others? For those of us who follow Jesus, I think here's the real question. Will we surrender our lives? Will we give of ourselves for the sake of other people? Will we, will we choose to loosen the grips of self-centeredness in our hearts by beginning to, to look outward into the needs and into the lives of others? You know, here at the Medina campus, you, you guys hear us talk all the time about things like Love Medina, where we go out and we serve our community, or we talk about things like serving, a lot, we talk about that, serving the needs of each other or serving the needs of our community or serving the needs of a certain ministry. We talk a lot here about things like community, right? about like being involved in biblical community. All of those things that we're talking about require to some extent or another that you die to yourself. They require that you make yourself uncomfortable. They require that you don't do what you naturally wanna do. Why would we ever do that? Why would we ever do that? Unless we believed that what Jesus said is true that the way that we truly find life and the way that we truly find ourselves is by giving ourselves away. So as we worship and we sing, would you reflect? Just talk to God about these questions that are here. Talk to him because he knows you and he knows your heart and he loves you and he wants to hear from you. So let's pray. 
Jesus, I do just wanna say thank you that you have given us your word, that you have given us words that don't, you haven't left us in the dark, left us guessing who we are and who you are and, and how to get back into a right relationship with you. You haven't left us in the dark. You've given us the answers to that. And so I pray now, God, that you would help us. Help us to turn from ourselves and to you in our hearts and in our lives, God. Lord, I pray that for some of us, we would take our shame right to you, that our shame wouldn't cause us to run from you, but it would cause us to run right to you, right to you, where we would find forgiveness because of the Savior that you've given us in Jesus. And God, I pray that you would liberate us, unshackle us from just, just the bondage of selfishness in our lives that's so suffocating, and help us to live as free people who are free to truly be who you've created us to be. And so, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.